The biggest, I guess there's lots of proposed, I say lots of, there's a few key proposed mechanisms around mental fatigue and I guess without getting too super sciencey, but the basically the rating of perceived exertion is, is the moderator or the thing that we think regulates most definitely how we then output physically. Um, and that is likely to do with the idea of accumulation of adenosine um, in the brain. And then that has a subsequent consequence basically on things like dopamine and motivation, basically then your perception of effort and how you're going to perform in the task. And that tends to be also sort of backed up by how we see it impact endurance tasks. Hello and welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Make sure if you haven't already to subscribe to my YouTube channel to receive a notification and never miss a live interview. I hope you enjoyed this interview and please share with a friend or a teammate that you think will value this episode. Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. My name is Jack McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Susie Russell. Our key topic for today's chat will be all around cognitive fatigue, working with elite athletes. So it'll be practical tips both for high-performance staff, but also for developing athletes listening in that are looking to up your mental game, make sure to stick around. If anyone that's tuning in live, feel free to use the comment section below in wherever you listen to this live chat show, and we'll be more than happy to answer your questions at the end of the show. Welcome, Susie. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks very much for having me, Jack. No worries. For, for those that aren't aware of your work yet, Susie, do you mind providing a background of everything you've done so far? Yeah, sure. So at the moment, I'm what we call a postdoctoral researcher at Australian Catholic University, and I work there within the Sprint Research Centre. And it's basically a partnership that we have between the Australian Institute of Sport and Queensland Academy of Sport that primarily most of my day-to-day is spent looking at mental fatigue and mental recovery in athletic populations get to be based in in sunny Queensland in Brisbane so we do have centers sort of all over Australia but it's a nice location to be and obviously you know travel a little bit around data collection at certain sites but my sort of background which surprises some people I guess when they hear that my topic of interest and expertise is you know this mental fatigue and mental recovery side but I'm actually like an exercise and sports scientist accredited sports scientist by background and did a bachelor of exercise and sports science and had a fair few sort of different research experiences and also some industry applied roles, mostly performance analytics and some physio- physiology roles, working obviously with athletes and, and in sport, bit of experience in, in sports tech and also some government partnership type projects. And then throughout this journey sort of have completed my PhD, which was on mental fatigue and elite sport, which I guess has really just laid the foundation and then set the direction for this sort of main areas of interest being fatigue, recovery, sort of well-being in reference to both optimizing health and also performance in, in our athletes, but also in general human performance and, and general populations that we can help. Yeah, very good. How did you first start to go down the path of mental fatigue? Like where did this sort of passion begin? Was there a particular moment that you can reference or is it sort of something that happened organically? It kind of did happen organically. We had, I really wanted to do something with Netball Australia when I um, wanted to do a PhD, really cared about the sport and wanted, I mean, it's great. There's more attention on it now, but five years ago or so there was less and thought that, you know, those athletes were worthy of, of the research and, and trying to support their performance a bit more. And something that was discussed as like a problem that they had or something that they identified they wanted to improve within their sport very loosely 
we don't really know what it is or, or what we want to do about it. And then just started basically between Sharona Halston, who's one of my supervisors and one of her old PhD students, Laura Julich, who was there at the time, discussing the idea and then went and did some reading about it. And I do remember one, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit, but one reading one paper, which is by Smith and colleagues, and it was about the impact that it could have on, on yo-yo performance, basically. And it was something, it's like up to 16% decline in, in as an average decline in yo-yo intermittent recovery when mm. mentally fatigued. And I just remember thinking like, oh, if it can have that much impact, why are we not doing something about it? And I think that was, yeah. I guess, the first live bulb moment of being like, okay, let's take a step back and start thinking about this more in application to sport. But obviously a huge collection of experiences and people that sort of came to the idea of, of being interested in it and wanting to research it and to get me to where we are sort of today with it. So, yeah. Yeah, very good. That's sort of a good segue for the next question. Some, who have been some strong influences or mentors, if you like, that have helped you along, along your journey? Yeah, this is, this is a tough question and we might spend the whole podcast me telling you about all the people that I think have helped me because there's definitely a very long list of them. But I think probably quite a few people at this sort of, I guess, early career stage that I'm at years post PhD would would say their PhD supervisors have had a great influence on them and mine definitely is a super positive influence. So that's David Jenkins who's now at the Sunny Coast University, uh, who really like his excellence and efficiency and also I guess the power of how you can interact with someone and make them feel and the importance of that is definitely something I've taken away from him. And then Vince Kelly who's now at QT also in terms of like aiming high and really taking decisions and moving forward outside of my comfort zone and pushing myself. I think he's really helped in that perspective. Who I luckily still get to work with um, every day at ACU. So she's heavily involved in leading all of my sort of current projects as well. And it's actually a quite funny story because I would Shona when I was a third year undergrad or something, she came in and did a guest lecture. And from that moment, I was like, oh, this lady is such a great, great role model for, I guess, a female scientist in sport. But I guess what I think about Shona is she's sort of my favorite type of role model because the more that I get to know her, the more that I work with her, the more of a role model she sort of becomes, which I think is not always the case with some people. And I think that's a really special thing and I feel super fortunate for that. And yeah, I mean, there is, I could talk for hours. There's lots of people, Brendan Zhao, who's at Brisbane Mines, Nick Murray, Richard McInnes, who it's at Five As With, given his swimming physiologist, there's lots and lots of people that have really shaped, I guess, my professional practice. And then I think more recently, people like David Joyce have been really generous with their time to help me develop sort of personally and professionally as well. And there's some colleagues internationally, um, Bart Rowlands is one of them, who's really helping me support and sort of develop on my understanding from a mental fatigue side mechanistically and, and collaborating of the applied to the to the lab-based setting. So yeah, there are a few of the people that I think have had a really big influence, but I could go on for hours about it. So I probably should, uh, should stop there with them. Yeah, there's some great people in, in that list. So that's fantastic. From on that note, you mentioned international collaborations and that you've been doing in the mental fatigue space. Like where does Australia sit, do you think, in terms of who's most progressive, or what country's most progressive in research at the moment and applied research in elite sport with cognitive fatigue? Yeah, I think it's kind of a tough question because in terms of like mental fatigue generally, I'd say Europe is quite advanced in terms of having a lot of, I guess, research behind it for a few more years than we have sort of bothered to look at it here. 
But then I do kind of think in the nature of us being great in terms of applied research, we've now kind of helped contribute really heavily towards that applied side over the past five or six years or so. So it's a bit of a balance. I think the, you know, long-term sort of lab-based studies are definitely Europe. It's more accepted and it's been more integrated for quite a few years. And I think Australia's really provided, yeah, that more like practical angle on what we can do, both in terms of like sporting practice, but also just in general population. There's quite a few good groups that are really contributing University of Canberra is an example of that, to sort of how we can help our everyday people with this phenomenon as well. And career highlights that sort of spring front of mind that you're proud of? Yeah, I think there are definitely some that I think I'm proud of things that I've I've achieved and definitely, I guess, some pinch me moments where I sort of, you know, get asked to be part of certain groups or lead symposiums and that kind of thing. And you're like, wow, you know, how did I get here and, and what opportunities to work with these people? And I think definitely like my experiences working with and learning from, from others are like the things that I see as highlights. I think as a person, I think some of the things that I'm most proud of are actually how I sort of aided and helped other people grow, whether they can be small things or little things, but when you've contributed to help someone achieve success. And obviously for a lot of people that might be in, a, in an athletic setting and I definitely have some examples of that, but I think it's also a lot in terms of like a research setting you can help people progress themselves basically and do a better job of, of what they're doing. And I think they're probably the things that make me feel, I guess, most alive and, and that I am most proud of. I have a couple of, I got the opportunity to work at Australian Open in the Recovery Centre and that was in 2020, I think it was, yeah, just before the, the COVID scenario. But basically, yeah, was, was given this opportunity and ended up, a long, long story short, but was watching at a game of Coco Golf and Naomi Osaka on my laptop when Nadal walked in to do his ice bath and then asked me that we could watch the game together. Just to remember sort of afterwards reflecting, being like, wow, that's a pretty surreal moment. And I'm not, not normally, you know, someone who's starstruck at all by athletes. You know, they're nor, normal humans really who are really talented and work really hard. But that's definitely a bit of a moment that I was like, oh, didn't think that would ever happen to me. Yeah. So, yeah. There's definitely been a few along the way and hopefully some more to come. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure there will be. And what about on the flip side, like in, in elite sport and, and in research, there comes pressure and what have been some moments where, yeah, you're faced with, with significant challenges and what have you learned through that process? Yeah, I think this is like a tough question because I think there's a lot of learnings that happen every single day. And I think probably for me as well, I quite like being challenged or the experience of you know having to problem solve and grow so there is probably quite a few I think this like this sounds like a bit of a cop-out answer but definitely early in my career I was wanting to do everything and do everything super super well to sort of you know as high a level as I could and I think I've definitely learned over time through that challenge that it's okay to have like generalist roots and then specialize in a topic but if you're going to do that and specialize, you obviously need to let other experts contribute to build an overall picture and, and rely on them more. And I guess work collaboratively. And I think that's something that's really, I've really progressed at doing the last two years. And I think it's definitely made my work of a better quality as a result of being able to do that. I think those challenges are quite prevalent when you're trying to do an applied job and PhD and sort of split between many things. So I think that's probably like, one of the biggest learnings and I think with that as well like reflecting on this question I kind of 
started at a time where like during undergrad, there's probably less visibility of, of female practitioners and, and leading researchers. Like there was definitely very key people around that have done great things. But I think when I looked at myself, I didn't necessarily look, look like, you know, the classic high performance manager or professor that was promoted to us as being like a leader in X field. And that's changing a lot now. But I think the kind of learning from that is it, it took me a lot of time and conversations with people to see like my unique skill set and even my unique area of expertise is actually like a strength, you know, and I think that it really goes for anyone of like any gender or any background, but to have the insight to kind of build confidence that actually arriving at an organization or like being part of a project or whatever it is, not thinking like everyone else and not with the same biases and experiences that they walk into the room with is actually a really like it's a strength, it's an asset to the other people and difference can be something you should, you know, pride yourself on rather than trying to be fit a mold, like being your authentic self and not minimizing that is is really important. And I think I've also probably learned from that and grown, I guess, through the experience of the topic that I picked and it being, it's very popular now, but five years ago it was, was less of a well-discussed thing. And yeah, I think that's kind of advice that I think is a learning that everyone should take away but there's a lot of room for a lot of diversity in this area of sport and you don't have to look like someone else to be able to excel i think yeah dicky yeah. guns there's some great advice there no doubt we haven't even started the key topic and the notebooks <laughs> would be out i reckon or cars have parked and people writing in their notes and their phones that's fantastic well said well, let, well let's dive into um the key topic of, of your choice and i guess we'll start with just a bit of an introductory but can you explain what mental fatigue is and how it differs from physical fatigue I think this is really important to, I guess, set the scenes in terms of what we're actually talking about here and tough one to start, which is there's, I guess, a few differing like opinions or contributions towards this definition, but it's mental fatigue basically is defined as what we call a psychobiological state. So it has psychological and biological or physiological components induced by a prolonged period of demanding cognitive activity. And that's basically something that requires, or some people like to add, that that requires sustained mental efficiency. So um, I guess like to break that down, it sounds a bit a bit vague. I think if you don't understand sort of the three key components. So it's basically simply doing or an individual engaging in something that they find cognitively demanding, whether that be like actually in terms of like a cognitive domain that's being targeted or maybe it could also be emotionally demanding and influential in that way. For a duration of time that induces mental fatigue so you can kind of yep. think of it as the same as physical in that aspect like sure like the amount of time that you do it for is going to depend on obviously how resistant you might be to that but different tasks are fatiguing for different people and how long that task takes to fatigue someone is also probably going to be slightly different with regards to it differing from physical fatigue this is again like something that can be hard to articulate sometimes because Research has really shown us like it's largely perceived by athletes as a separate phenomena from physical fatigue. So only sort of like a 14% um, shared variance or crossover between them, but they're obviously really interactive in nature. So we know that obviously the brain and the way that works in terms of exercise and physiology, there's strong connections there. So um, it's sort of like they're separate but interactive components basically. And how, in terms of how we look at fatigue, I think people generally and even athletes will think of like the physical side or the neuromuscular side to start with might even be sort of like dietary 
inadequacies or something that people tend to think of before they think of, of cognitive or mental fatigue. So it's important to, I guess, understand how, what those sources might be or what those different aspects might be. And I'm sure it's a variety contributing that's causing that fatigue rather than just one normally in isolation. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great, great, great place to start. And you mentioned earlier a 16% drop-off in yo-yo performance. What's actually going on there? Like what physical point of view, where do you think athletes are being impacted from an athletic performance when they're in mental mental fatigue state? Yeah, so the biggest, I guess there's lots of proposed, I say lots of, there's a few key proposed mechanisms around mental fatigue and Yes, without getting too super sciencey, but the basically the rating of perceived exertion is is the moderator or the thing that we think regulates most definitely how we then output physically, um, and that is likely um, to do with the idea of accumulation of adenosine uh, in the brain, and then that has a subsequent consequence basically on things like dopamine and motivation. Basically, then your perception of effort and how you're going to perform in the task. And that tends to be also sort of backed up by how we see it impact endurance tasks quite substantially um, or quite solid evidence behind that. But having said that, it also impacts a lot of other tasks, but also the concept that caffeine is basically a competitive inhibitor to, to that disease and that we see, as many people probably know themselves, positive effects of, of caffeine consumption on subsequent performance when someone's mentally fatigued. So that's kind of the, the theory or the philosophy, at least, that I tend to abide by. And there's still lots more work to do in that space. And lots of great people are, are looking at those mechanisms quite closely. But that's sort of like the simplest. If you think of rating of perceived exertion as the mediator to the to the declined output, then that's normally what we tend to find in studies. Okay. And mentioned the accumulation and the, and how time is a, is a factor. What are some early signs, I guess, for athletes listening in where they can pick up and be aware of some signs themselves when they're starting to dip into a bit of a fatigue state and, and so they can act accordingly, I guess? Yeah, no, this is like a really good question and point to consider. In terms of actual like definition of how a state of mental fatigue is determined, it's again sort of determined by subjective behavioral and neurophysiological changes or and or each of them and for athletes particularly, sometimes those neurophysiological changes might be hard to access. So functional fMRI, for example, or EEG, probably not able for them to access all the time. So, and the same, even we're starting to see more of it now, but behavioral indicators that like response time or response accuracy on short cognitive tasks maybe are harder for athletes to get access to. So looking at the subjective experiences of them and also not just as the fact that subjective indicators can, can be useful for us like generally in sport, but also that, you know, that subjective component is really part of how an athlete experiences mental fatigue. So how they're feeling, we know is going to impact how they perform. So we actually did a study, one of my first PhD studies that did focus group discussions with a bunch of athletes and staff to really understand what mental fatigue was for them, right? Because you know, kind of have this textbook definition and then it's like, oh, well, what does that mean for me as an athlete? And things that athletes report or some athletes listening might, I guess, benefit from understanding is that it's normally due to so you identify like a change in behavior or a change in feelings. Things like, as I said, increased effort required to do the same activity or output, maybe a decreased attention to detail, more disengagement or potentially withdrawal, you know, as things mentioned by 
physios and athletes do you know about the way that they interact potentially when they're feeling more mentally fatigued. We can see things like decreased emotional regulation, so therefore an increased emotional response. So they might, the way they're interacting with other team members or staff or even like, I don't know, responding to a referee making a certain decision, for example. And then they might also notice things like concentrating is a bit harder or an increased demand to concentrate like on a task that normally feels quite easy. I'm really having to put my effort into focusing on this. And they've also shared things like feelings of a a full brain or that's what I feel like when I'm experiencing mental fatigue. But yeah, that, I guess, the perception of effort or things feeling harder, but for the same physiological output can be a really big indicator. So they can potentially still achieve the same output, but it's not as easy as it normally feels to do. And if they're seeing that, I guess, consistently, that can be a good sign and symptom as well to understand. Yeah. Okay. So it's the how they perceive a, a, a session, like you said, so that potentially before they're doing the yo-yo, they would perceive that amount of work differently to when they're feeling mentally fresh, but then also when they experience it. Is that right? Or is it purely the experience of it, of the actual um, It's normally purely the experience of the actual workload. So they might not necessarily, it, I mean, it depends. You might be feeling like without the workload, but you also feel like things are feeling harder but for example when you're doing the test like running at x intensity feels much harder than it normally would and yeah. i'm really having to overcome thoughts of wanting to stop a lot or all the time basically which then also yep. itself feeds into being cognitively demanding and yeah so yeah, those kind of sense. i guess feelings that they might express but i do i guess always think it's important to say that like those signs and symptoms are from a select it was a rigorous study and a big group but a select group of australian athletes so it's also got to think about what it is to the individual and making sure that they yeah, have awareness of that and, and can look into that and discuss that themselves with their team. And what would be some strategies once you've yeah worked out that potentially you are in a fatigue state? What would be some effective strategies that you found helpful for, for athletes? Yeah, so this again is becoming much more, I guess, research. People have started to be like, oh, this thing is actually maybe a problem and also great news is we can probably do something about it or we're not doing much about it so there's lots of scope to do something about it I think there's definitely like a lot of strategies that athletes can like self-identify and self-apply and then there's also potential obviously for the staff to help identify and help I guess apply these there's a the the evidence in terms of there's quite a few individual studies that look at different components so we've got things basically like listening to like specific music frequencies. So like relaxing string music or vinyl beats is like beating tone with a certain frequency that people can use, using like more frequent psychological feedback. So like visual performance feedback during your exercise tasks or also biofeedback. So having better awareness about their heart rate and breath rate has also been shown, I guess, to help mediate the effects of mental fatigue. We also, I guess the strongest evidence that we have, which I sort of mentioned before, is the use of caffeine prior to if you need basically to acutely mitigate that mental fatigue and be able to perform, then that one can be one that people use and many do. I think you obviously need to have awareness of the consequences of using caffeine at certain times of day and then the consequence that that might have on sleep as well. So that's like a broader consideration around that. There's also some evidence, there's a systematic review done from a group in Belgium that I work quite closely with and people should go and, go and have a read of it if they're really interested in these strategies, but basically about how to how to tackle mental fatigue. And 
sniffing certain scents has also been shown to have a positive impact. And there's quite a few, I guess, like sort of herbal or more like alternative substances that people can recommend or have been shown to be effective. And then the other big one that athletes probably maybe in some cases do, but probably don't realize that can also have a cognitive benefit is there's some studies that show us like a loading dose of creatine supplementation. So 20 grams per day over seven days. So like a decent dose might benefit cognitive performance, which is something that they can obviously like, you know, work with their dietitian or whatever to implement. And athletes never like it when I tell their coaches this one, but there's some evidence that social media has negative effects on our cognitive performance and also even our physical performance when mentally, when it causes mental fatigue. So just being really strategic about their social media use, like obviously there's ethical considerations for, for not using media if it's a source of finance and a source of engagement and also social interaction for some people, but just being like planned and periodized about, okay, well, I'm not going to use it for 20 minutes immediately prior to training or I'm not going to use it immediately prior to a game. And yeah, so there's a range of strategies available. There's also things like, yeah, breathing exercises that can be useful in terms of practice as well as short power naps can be 20 minute power nap can also be effective in terms of acutely relieving. And then we have this concept. So if we talk about them in terms of they might be helping us acutely reduce the experience of mental fatigue and, and manage it in that way. You can also think of it as trying to build a tolerance to mental fatigue like you would, you know, you train physically to try and build your capacity to be able to cope with X load. Well, it's kind of the same concept mentally that we're starting to see. And this is a bit more more recent, so there's not so much evidence for exact protocols that we should be following. We've got some PhDs at the moment that are going to be looking at this type of thing, but basically around this concept of brain endurance training where you're loading your brain cognitively deliberately for, you know, 20 minute protocol or something three times a week. And then you can potentially build protective effects from the negative consequences of mental fatigue. Obviously that's got to be planned and periodized within like the bigger picture in terms of training, because it can make people feel quite fatigued, but there's really good evidence of that in or really good evidence of changes in untrained populations. And we just need to do a bit more investigation into how that actually translates to those who already are completing quite high physical loads. And, and see the impacts that it can have there as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's it's not just a matter of recovery, so to speak. There's also an element mm. of building resilience, just like you mentioned with the physical side, building up yeah. the tolerance. And I think that's something, Jack, that often people kind of, they just want the quick Band-Aid, like fix yeah. approach. And even some of those that I speak about, like, you know, the breathing interventions, I think they're, they're better when they're done regularly, you know, for four or six weeks or it's kind of like, I really like to talk about this idea of like proactively managing mental fatigue. So we're either like basically enhancing mental recovery, which again, exactly the same. We need to sometimes enhance physical recovery and return to a point that we want to be or sort of inducing mental fatigue, but with a deliberate um, idea and cause to get an adaptation response to that. I think there, and I definitely probably was also like this when I started looking at it, like it's like, well, mental fatigue is always bad. And it's like, it's not oh, always yeah. bad. It fatigue is not always bad, right? Like there's a lot of cases where we, we're like, oh, fatigue, oh, great, good. That means we're getting a response. Like that's where we want you to be. Uh, but it's just about having the awareness to plan and periodize that. I think that's really, really important. And yeah, whenever I work with teams, I try and I guess get them to understand that concept and same for the athletes themselves and almost not be, not be concerned about being in a state of that. And if they've built the ability to have 
these strategies that they know can acutely help them, then it's like, okay, I know that when I need that, that's there and I can, I can choose to do X strategy and I know that's going to work for me, or I can choose to do X of this whole range of strategies that I've got, you know, in my little, little capabilities that I can apply. And I think that's where we see the most success of, of the management, but we still got a lot more research to do. So yeah, sure. I'll see you in a couple of years and I'll hopefully have some great protocols to advise you on, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, well, well, I guess for high performance managers or those in leading position, leadership positions, what would be some some strategies that you have implemented with larger groups, like a like a football club, so to speak, or is it something that needs to be done on an individual basis, building up the tolerance over a preset yeah. sort of thing? This probably, like honestly, the response that we see with mental fatigue is generally really is really quite individual. So. And I say that in terms of like when you put even like a quite like similar, like like homogeneous group of people through a protocol, you tend to actually also see quite a bit of variability in how they respond. And we've even seen that if, if you look at, you know, some of the papers and things that we've produced, you know, the range is, is really quite significant. And I guess what can be fatiguing for each person can be can be difficult. So I think part of why it's not always super well managed is that there is that individual aspect to it. But I think some things like can be quite easily individualized, like caffeine and creatine dose and timing is not actually that hard to individualize. Even like brain endurance training, there's a lot of apps now that will work based on your basically cognitive performance and how you're doing and also even like your physical outputs, like your heart rate and be able to work off that. And and you can moderate and you can use things like HRV as a you know, a morning indicator to then think about how you might implement for that athlete. Like it definitely isn't, I'm not saying it's an easy thing to manage because it's not and and nothing is easy to manage in a large group of athletes. But I think there's also the potential to kind of group people into certain categories and really include their, I guess, involvement and perceptions to be able to allow us to, I guess, intervene and tackle the best that we can within smaller groups. But we do know from some research in sort of general populations that things like our occupational demand, so like what we're doing on our day-to-day work or lives, participation in sport and exercise, which hopefully for our athletes isn't a problem, and same with CV fitness, can all sort of pro- be protective or pro- provide, con- contribute to being slightly protective on the impact of mental fatigue on, on physical performance. So I guess there's lots of things that we can be identifying to try and do and then identifying factors further in terms of okay well we think they might be at risk because of xyz or even just recording for a period of time and then identifying and there is some really good research going on at the moment which is really trying to use they've got like 160 participants like to look at all these different factors and how they all these individual things might influence how we respond to mental fatigue basically and hopefully that will help us inform a little bit more but there's obviously going to be differences across across certain sports and across individual athletes within those certain sports and yeah, sort of a case by case management in my opinion. Sure. And if we, if we use that sort of like AFL squad as an example, what would be some of your big rocks from a category point of view? Is it an age thing from a maturity point of view, a learning style, personality traits? Like, yeah, what would be some of your key areas to, to focus on in terms of breaking up maybe into three groups? Yeah, I think I'm saying this all from kind of like a anecdotal and interpretation. Like we don't have hard evidence to say in in this group in athletes even, but probably yes. like level of experience and exposure to the environment. So 
if the environment's really new to them, obviously there's going to be a lot of new stimuli and obviously also general fatigue that they're going to experience compared to if they've maybe been in that environment for a bit more time. So just think about an example that's never, like an athlete that's never done a media appearance before and it's media day. They're going to find that more cognitively fatiguing than someone who has, has done 10 of them. Or for example, like someone who's quite introverted generally as a personality, they might find that more of an overwhelming or, or fatiguing experience, for example. So I think definitely like exposure at the level, but that doesn't mean there's also, you know, the idea that I've been around for a really long time and everything's feeling repetitive at the other end of the scale. So it's not just uh, one more experience is definitely more resistant because that's not necessarily the case. I think get personality factors as well in terms of just like and used to like exposure and those kind of high level conversations or decisions and even just things like the professional side of the game in terms of the tactical like exposure and conversations that happen that might be for example for some people more of a contributor than others and again things like exposure to travel if they've never been for some players oh I've been to this hotel three times I can already imagine what it's going to look like I know that I sleep well with these pillows and I know what the food's like at that hotel for a rookie players going for the first time they've got to think about all those things well how do I get what coffee shop am I going to go to in the morning like it's it sounds silly but all these things add load to our day and like for some athletes they might find actually some have reported you know to me that they find away trips great because they can forget about all the other load that they have going on in their lives and it's just they can focus on the sport and it's less demanding and for some they're like no I find it really hard and challenging being away like for my family, for example, if they might have a young family. So there's lots of, yeah, lots and lots of different factors to manage. And also like even how they're performing and like selection pressure and contract pressure, like, you know, I'd say maybe there's higher risk of this experience in, in players that know they're not performing very well and potentially their contract might, might be up. And it's about, you know, using your coach and staff to make sure it's communicated really well to make someone or a rookie in the opposite position, make them feel comfortable about what they are contributing, for example, or make them feel valued in the time that they do have. So I think there is like so many different things. And I think being able to identify that that change in behavior of ex-athlete is going to be really, really helpful to then be able to just start a conversation about, okay, well, what might be mentally fatiguing for them, if anything, at that time that might be contributing to how they're, they're behaving and how they're performing potentially. With a big event coming up, let's say for you know, a finals finals game, would you would you recommend changing any is it for an athlete that does have their routine down pat from a mental point of view and they feel like they're in a good spot in good form and would they change anything coming up into a into a bigger game where there's a bigger stimulation, maybe a bigger crowd and yeah, there's a bigger hype for a particular performance or is it a matter of sticking to your routine? Yeah, I think, I don't know that I'm really positioned to to answer it in terms of like not having a, a like mental performance coach like background, but I would say like if something, generally I say if something works for an athlete, do it for them. Like there's even yep. cases, you know, where, you know, the clinical evidence might not suggest this works, but if they find for that individual that it's working, well, then why would we, why would we change yeah. it or in, in suggest that they do something else? But then you might also have people who feel like they want to, engage in more strategies because they know that the additional crowd is really overstimulating for them so they might look at things like you know listening to certain frequencies of music or mindfulness intervention or something um, before to add additional supplementation but again it's just working with them 
finding out, you know, the reasoning for why they think they would want to engage with that and making sure you're trialing it before they're in that big occasion. And that's what I was talking about is, you know, finding the right time to trial these strategies when we're not in the high pressure situation so that then it's not finals week and we're like, oh, what are we going to do and add in? It's like, okay, well, we might add this in because I know that when I did it for four weeks over X time, it was really beneficial for me to have and it's a resource there that I can I can use. And that's, you know, the same for any sort of thing that we would add or take away in sport. You're not going to go and drastically change diet or that kind of routine if it's not needed to be changed for no reason because it's the final. We do interestingly have a bit of evidence that's sort of shown from our league-wide studies with, with Super Netball that potentially a longer season might mean that towards the end of the season we're experiencing high levels of, of mental fatigue. And I guess the idea or there was like the repetitive exposure of these activities or of the daily training and competition environment might make us more susceptible to experiencing it. A bit like when you're not returning down to a level, you're not fully recovered, then a smaller stimulus can obviously potentially induce more easily. So it's definitely something for um, netball season is only 12 weeks in the case where we had a netball world cup in the middle it was like 16 or 18 weeks of, of total time and that's not very long compared to most sports seasons that we we see happening so i think that's definitely that sort of potential accumulation factor or not direct accumulation but susceptibility to more likelihood of experiencing it might be something that that teams do want to look at and where they can then put in certain breaks like I don't know, making an extra effort to have, you know, two days off in a row. And that two days off doesn't mean like, oh, okay, you're not doing any physical training. It also means we're not contacting you for 48 hours and you don't have any expectation to reply to anything or like anything on social media or basically engage and you can go and switch off in a way that you you want to as an athlete and that's your choice, basically. We're giving you these two days to, to recover and get yourself ready back to train again. Mm. Something that's worth discussing anyway in your high-performance team. Yeah, and with that, I guess switching off for the young athletes listening or potentially mature as well, that video games might be an area of switching off. Does that have a similar effect to social media? Uh, or is it yes. more the social media? <laughs> again, I'm not very popular, Jack, but I, I say this much. Yeah, and again, it's just like it's periodized use of it, right? Like if it's something, it can also have positive benefits. It can allow people to connect with friends who aren't like in the sporting space, for example, and that can have really positive benefits for them. But again, it's use of you're doing something that's really cognitively demanding your brain. It's obviously super active. The parts of your brain that we know are important to decision-making and sustained attention are really active. So yeah, it's going to have consequences, right? Like it's, but I'm a sort of really big balancer of like, okay, well, let's figure out how, if that's something you still really want to engage with, how can we make that work within your week? Like how can we restructure that? And, you know, prioritizing the important things. And, and if you're going to do that, okay, well, are you making sure that you're recovering from that before you then come to the club next morning to perform how we want you to? But yeah, unfortunately, there is a bit of evidence to show us they're also negatively impacting our cognitive performance at least. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. And what about TV shows and where you're sort of yeah. relaxed, I guess? I haven't seen so much research yet. I can tell you like that generally what happens is like as a control condition, people might watch like an emotionally neutral documentary, um, which I still think would have, it has some cognitive engagement. So maybe an actual, you know, rest control is better. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I think it depends what it is and how that person is emotionally or cognitively connected to it. And then I think you've also got to think about the bigger picture there of like, 
okay, well, are we watching this late at night before we're going to try and go to bed? Well, that has other recovery consequences of probably, you know, the light exposure before bed, reducing our chances of sleep or increasing our sleep latency, right? So again, it's like the bigger picture of recovery, but then also you might get enjoyment from that and it might be relaxing, but just do it earlier, basically, before you're or further away from your bedtime. So yeah, but I haven't actually seen too much in terms of the actual impacts of them. And I'm sure people will start looking at them at them more as, a, as another thing that could be fatiguing. I mean, I think everything can be can go either way, right? Like I know for myself, like, and it just depends on what the the individual task is for someone. So if something's like actually quite, I have to give it lots of attention or I have to make quite a lot of decisions or even do like some high pressure work, not actually normally that cognitively, like in terms of my physical performance, I wouldn't find that I'm that cognitively fatigued from it. But if I have something that's like a big emotional load and decision going on then my physical performance is super effective right so it's like you just I think again it comes down to that individual and what's fatiguing for them and considering all the sources that that could be is normally a good place to start for someone and then planning and periodizing that but also a bit like with all technology I think it's important that you don't become obsessive about something you know being negative or having a negative impact when it might not be something that you've paid particular attention to before and just because yeah whatever your heart rate variability one day has been affected or or something else or you feel sluggish in terms of cognitive performance that not taking that to the point of okay well I'm definitely going to train poorly today yeah it's really important and keeping everything like in perspective all these indicators and even feelings are just helpful information that can help inform how we want to behave in, in training or how we might perform in training rather than I guess being a deal breaker so yeah Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing it. And what would be some long-term consequences for perhaps an athlete that sort of suppressed the symptoms early on of, yeah, lack of concentration and feeling low motivation and those subjective signs that you mentioned? Maybe perhaps someone that's listening to this might be, you know, not aware of mental fatigue and now they're thinking, oh, this could be, this could be <laughs> me here. I've been feeling this for, you know, quite some time now. Yeah, what would be some are they more significant symptoms or is it just the fact that those ones that you were feeling are stronger? Yeah, I think theoretically there's definitely a potential like link or there could be because of that obviously important neurotransmitters that I mentioned like adenosine and dopamine and serotonin that are also quite important or very critical around our mental health. So I think firstly the thing that I'd say if an athlete is feeling like that in any way and whether they're like, oh, I'm not sure if it's mental fatigue or I'm not sure what it is, you know, go and get the appropriate medical help, have the right conversations with doctors and psychologists. And it might be that it's just, yeah, a feeling of mental fatigue. It also might be something that uh, I guess more relates to their their mental health state. And also they can then obviously get the appropriate support with that. I think it's logical or theoretically logical that a sustained exposure to mental fatigue might have a relationship potentially with someone's mental health, but we don't have any solid evidence again to show that that would be the case in athletes. And yeah, as I sort of spoke about before, as with any stimulus, you know, re-exposure to something when you're not fully recovered can then, you know, trigger a greater subsequent fatigue response. So that might also be something that they're feeling and it's just that they're not giving themselves adequate time or resources to mentally recover fully before they're trying to, or that before they are experiencing another mentally fatiguing stimuli. So therefore they're more susceptible for, for that period. And yeah, we do need to do more work to definitely explore this. But yeah, I think... If that's the way that someone is feeling, definitely the best the best thing that they could do is is go and use their multiple disciplinary teams to 
to get support and at least identify and figure out exactly what is going on for them uh, and then obviously work with the appropriate people to try and get themselves in a positive place to be able to partake and and compete in the way that they'd like to. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you for, for yeah providing such great insight on, on a topic that clearly you're so passionate about and have the expertise in. <laughs> Is there anything that you'd like to, to touch on or something that we haven't discussed perhaps on this topic that you'd like to share? I don't know that there's anything particularly. I think one thing that we do have from recent, sort of a recent, I say recent project and sim review at the moment is that we did a survey, which I'm sure some people listening might be aware of about, okay, well, what role do coaches and support staff, I guess, play in mental fatigue? What are they currently doing about it? And I guess the idea was to understand, well, was hoping to understand, okay, People might have in practice all these great ideas and strategies that research hasn't looked at yet. And turns out that a lot of people told us that they think mental fatigue and mental recovery impact performance. In fact, nearly everyone that completed the survey said, yep, we think it has a big impact on performance. But most people, I say most, less than half are actually either identifying it or doing something about it in their daily training and competition settings. And I think that, I guess the things kind of that I we want to discuss or say, or say to people is that part of the reason that was sort of attributed to that is that there's potentially not the protocols like I spoke about before that are easily to easily directly transferable straight across into ex-sport and ex-athlete that's at this level and we're obviously working like that's I guess part of on researchers and on researchers working in an applied setting to be able to create those translatable protocols but also some of the like discussion points I think that really emerged that I found super interesting were that it's quite like a multifaceted responsibility. So when you ask, oh, well, who's responsible for managing mental fatigue and recovery? Everyone's kind of like, oh, this person. And I think it's this Someone person. Else. And that person says, oh, no, it's this person. And it's kind of like this, like everyone is problem. in some way responsible. Yeah. Yeah. And exactly. It's like, well, who's, and like the coach did come out on both mental fatigue and mental recovery as being like, the primary person responsible, but I think you'd say that like for a lot of factors, but also just, I guess, like within your high performance team, just having a conversation about, okay, who's most suited for us to take the lead on the responsibility for this. And everyone can have different roles, like a dietitian, for example, in creatine and, and caffeine, for, for example, as, as one, but also, you know, someone else in your department, either like physiology or maybe an S&C in some cases that aren't, you know, as broadly resourced might take the lead on that recovery aspect of it and periodizing mental recovery into it too. Like basically I I try and encourage people that they can all be empowered to actually contribute and do something about it, but someone needs to like clarify on who is going to take that lead and how they're going to work as a multidisciplinary team to, to achieve it. And I think particularly like some athletes obviously have great access to psychologists and, and that can be really beneficial for them, but the time with them is often limited and maybe there's other things that they want to prioritize and discuss with the psychologist in those sessions so actually other people you know working within their scope but basically trying to facilitate this idea of mental fatigue and mental recovery in their applied setting can be can be really good and also like you know there's no harm in in trying in the right setting some of these strategies that we know have some evidence behind them to see how they apply for athletes who might want to so just because you don't have a protocol let's just use it afl as the example we don't have at the moment a protocol for the exact amount of maybe like music exposure or, or brain endurance training or protein load that we would give them to, to see a change that doesn't mean you can't try with that individual on a on a case-by-case basis I think people are a bit more hesitant because it's an area that they're less familiar with 
you know, we're not really taught about it yet in, in some unis, I hope maybe we'll be soon, but like, you're not really well exposed to this idea of mental fatigue and mental recovery as you maybe go through practice or even in terms of professional development opportunities to learn about it. But that doesn't mean that you can't potentially educate yourselves, try some tools and techniques, or even just monitor as, as a starting point. And it kind of might be a piece of the puzzle. Like I think a lot of people do a lot of great things in terms of physical management. Like there'll be a point of like, you know, this getting towards the ceiling effect where we're doing such a good job of that. And it's like, okay, maybe a point of difference is, is actually considering that. But I guess, yeah, the main point is, is like reach out and have conversations with people that do know either within your team or, or externally, because like translating that research across is really important us to do as well. So yeah, I think starting small and starting somewhere is okay with this stuff. It doesn't need to be like this huge overhaul to be able to, to achieve something. We actually can get quite a good return on investment from, from small changes. Yeah. Love that. That's it. That's a great way to wrap it up. Moving over to more personal side for the last few questions of the show. In your work life, do you have pet peeves? Anything that sort of makes you angry, fires you up in the industry or both in your, in your craft? Oh, I think, I think probably the thing that I find frustrating about actually both sport and academia in some ways is like, particularly in sport, we like the aim of the game is to outperform and beat other people, right? Like you want, you want to win and you want to be the most successful and the most this. And I think I get frustrated sometimes when I kind of see that rub off interpersonally in the way that people practice with each other. Like, so I actually think like within our industry, we're all trying to achieve the same common goal of like maximizing performance. Like no matter what like domain or scope or role you look at that within, like everyone is trying to help us get to, to this higher level. And I think sometimes people, I guess, like, you know, want to dim others' lights. Like if, if they're being really successful, then they kind of think that there's not space for everyone to be successful. But I think as an industry, collaborating and sharing actually really helps us achieve that and I don't know probably sometimes I, I overshare and I'm, I'm willing to help other people so much but I think when I see like other achievements like myself or people achieving things that I want to achieve like I'd be more likely to go to them and ask and learn and understand how they got there and what they're doing than choose to like put them down or try and decrease their achievement and I think it's something that we often see there's obviously a lot of a lot of demand for not much supply, I guess, in terms of jobs at the highest level in sport. And there's always, you know, successes, challenges, like as you go along. And I think I wish that people had better ability, I guess, or I really value when I do see in some people their ability to cel celebrate other people's successes and actually recognize like the great work that they're doing. And like, I'm a, like, I'm a super competitive person. Like if you play a board game with me, you never want to play another one with me. But I also think like, you know, I can, I can see other people's success without needing to like reduce that. And I can actually use it to help myself grow and help the whole industry be, be at a better level. And I think it riles me up a bit when I see people deliberately trying to reduce that in other people. So that's probably the one thing that frustrates me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, well said. Love that. What about what's your favorite way to spend your day off? Yeah, I normally, this is pretty boring, I think, but I, the simple things, I think, make a good day off. So I normally like to exercise, you know, with friends, whether that's, I've got a running group that I run with or social gym or cycle or something. I like spending time outside, like 
try and get for a hike or to the beach if I if I can. Do enjoy a good coffee and a good croissant. So that's at least something and a bit of time in the sunshine. I think don't know if it's a sign of me getting older, but an increasingly concerning amount of my time and days off is spent in Bunnings for some DIY improvements. But yeah, I think that's probably to be to do with sort of a, a sense of accomplishment in a non work related way. But yeah, mostly just spending time outside or spending time with people that I care about and really getting a different perspective, I think can be really helpful spending time with people outside of our industry as well as really insightful sometimes. And for those listening on the podcast recording, we're talking in like middle of May of 2023. So sort of halfway point of the year, what are you most excited about for the rest of the year? What's on the horizon for you? Yeah, to be honest, this year has been pretty, pretty wild and exciting to date for me. I just got back to a few weeks overseas with work, but I'm going again soon. So Excited, I guess, for some more travel going across to some conferences in the USA shortly and have never been to New York, so taking a little three-day break to visit there in between some conferences, so that'll be good. So I think mostly about a bit more travel and, and new experiences, but also got a lot of projects that have just started or are kicking off, particularly with some students that I think I'm really excited to be part of and see sort of progress, particularly ones that probably three or four years ago I would have dreamed that that we could do and that sports wanted to buy into. So it's really exciting to see that happen. So I think also looking forward to to that and engaging with them and supporting them as they go through as well. Yeah, watch this space. Plenty happening. <laughs> Certainly a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Very good. And for those that want to follow up and, and ask any questions, is there a best place to get in contact in terms of social media? Yeah, sure. Probably either just look for me on LinkedIn or Twitter is at Susanna underscore Russell, any of those, or yeah, they can also reach out to, to you and happy to, to send an email or, or give me a call. It's no problem. So love to talk with anyone, any ideas that they have or anything that they're thinking about implementing. Well, I'm happy to have a chat. So yeah. Amazing. I oh, really appreciate you coming on. Thanks again, Susie. And no doubt I took a lot from it. So no doubt the listeners have taken plenty from that and got a better understanding of mental fatigue now and, and some strategies to help athletes with or for the athletes that tuned in or parents of young athletes. Hopefully you've been able to apply something from this from this chat to help your kids or either your athletes that you're working with for the coaches. For those that tuned in halfway through, make sure to listen to the YouTube recording. It'll live on our YouTube playlist which you can just search for pair like a pro and we'll launch this podcast next wednesday our next live chat will be with des ryan that's on the 25th of may at 4 p.m australian stand time so i'll see you guys then thank you thanks again susie if you enjoyed this episode and want even more our academy is for you the prepare like a pro academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such as QA a segment aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian from Collingwood Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up? Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be and then game changes yeah, game changes whatever that might be and look it probably keeps me in a job but that it does drive me insane 
because yeah. sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete or athletes and, you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete for. Yeah. Yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with academy member Rama Davies, the friendly conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks. Welcome Rama to the chat. Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at Box Hill Hawks with us, awesome. so he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll handle it over to you, Rama, to, to ask you a question, mate. Thanks for joining us. Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. Um, mate, my my question to you was: you spoke a, a, quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat, um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, what are some of those things? Mm, yeah, good question. Um, yeah, so I suppose with perspective on life, um, that sort of point, um, it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now and, and didn't probably have that as much um, when I was younger. Um, I suppose... One thing I might mention is is gratitude. I spend a lot of my mm. time um, doing a lot of gratitude exercises, listening to podcasts, doing a, a journal every day just a bit to say what I'm grateful for, sort of three things. And um, that's a fantastic way that I've been able to, yeah, like reset and, and just kind of gain that gratitude and perspective about, you know, that there is more to life than football or, you know, might be whatever as an SNC coach, you know, if something's if you're having a hard time, um, it can be massive with just yeah opening your eyes a little bit and losing that sort of tunnel vision or being stuck in that in that work bubble um yeah. so that's that's been huge um i think i wish back then when i was younger i asked more questions and was a bit more open to different things mm. i think i was a bit single-minded back then and um you know i thought there was one way of doing things and um if i kind of didn't have that fear of you know asking a silly question or fear of judgment it would have got me a lot further and i probably would have learned a lot quicker um and yeah. and yeah like just yeah being open to sort of different things um because you never know what you might find it's just yeah there's so many people like great people out there knowledgeable people to learn off and there's plenty more where that came from if you would like to learn more then enter patreon.com forward slash prepare like a pro or head to the link in our show notes Thank you for listening to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. If you like this episode, it'd be a massive help if you could like, follow, rate, give a review, or even share with your mates. The show is recorded in Melbourne, Australia. Be sure to follow our Instagram page for all updates on our latest and greatest. If you would like to get in touch to suggest a guest or advertise with the Prepare Like a Pro podcast, please email me at jack at preparelikeapro.com. Thanks so much for tuning in.